Greetings this morning. I uh, appreciated the opening message and even some of the children's lesson. It, uh, some of the thoughts behind that go pretty well with what I want to share today. Um, why don't we start with a word of prayer? <coughs> Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, as we open your word. As I share a couple uh, stories, Father, pray that you would speak to each one of our hearts. Father, you know how you've been speaking to me on this uh, topic, and I don't have the answers. And I pray, Father, that as we go forward as a body here, that you would lead and guide us in these things. Let's pray for your blessing on the remainder of the service. Pray, Father, that you could. Use me as a channel. Father, I pray especially that you would just uh, help me to say those things you want me to say and to forget those that you don't want me to say. Just thank you, Lord, for your leading and preparation of the message to pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I'd like to start by reading a story, I might say, at the, uh, sorry, I might say at the beginning here, sometimes when you get up to preach, it feels like you sort of have some of the answers and you're just kind of sharing, uh, you know, what God has shown you, and other times you get up and you're like, I don't really know, you know, I don't have answers for this. And that's kind of where I'm at today, uh, it's a little different place, not to, not to say that I felt like I've had all the answers, but uh, it's not real, it's something that's not real clear um, in how it looks in our day today. So I'm going to... I have two stories I'd like to share throughout through the message, and then in the middle we'll look at, into God's Word and uh, what it has to say on this topic. Uh, for a title, um, you could put down the least of these. So I'll start here with a story. <clears throat> and in both of these, I've tried to trim out uh, things that are... There are details that are good and important in the story, but maybe not um, as pertinent as some of the other information in an effort to condense it. So if something doesn't make sense, it's because I've tried to trim out some things. Anyway, here we go. Jory and his cousin were lobbing snowballs at passing cars. From Jory's street corner on Milwaukee's near south side, cars driving on 6th Avenue past squat duplexes with porch steps ending at a sidewalk. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> Those headed north approached the Basilica of St. Josephat. It was January 2008, and the city was experiencing the snowiest winter on record. Every so often, a car turned off 6th Street to navigate Arthur Avenue, hemmed in by the snow. And that's when the boys would take aim. Jory packed a tight one and let it fly. The car jerked to a stop, and a man jumped out. The boys ran inside and 
locked the door to the apartment where Jory lived with his mother, Arlene, and younger brother, Jafaris. The lock was cheap, and the man broke the door down with a few hard-heeled kicks. He left before anything else happened. When the landlord found out about the door, she decided to evict Arlene and the boys. They had been there eight months. The day Arlene and her boys had to be out was cold, but if she waited any longer, the landlord would summon the sheriff, who would arrive with a gun and a team of boot-footed movers and a folded judge's order saying that her house was no longer hers. She would be given two options, truck or curb. Truck meant her things would be loaded into an 18-footer, like a box truck, and later checked into bonded storage. She could get everything back after paying $350, of which Arlene didn't have. So she opted for the curb, which would mean watching the movers pile everything onto the sidewalk. Her mattress, her floor model television, her copy of Don't Be Afraid to Discipline, her nice dining room table, and the lace tablecloth that fit just so. Silk plants, Bibles, the meat cuts in the freezer, the shower curtain, Jafaris's asthma asthma machine. Arlene took her sons, Jory Jory 13 and Jafaris 5, to a homeless shelter, which everyone called the Lodge, so you could tell your children, hey, we're staying at the Lodge tonight, like it was a motel or something. The two-story stucco building could have passed for one, except for the Salvation Army signs. Arlene stayed in the 120-bed shelter until April, when she found a house on 19th in Hampton, in the predominantly black inner city on Milwaukee's north side, not far from her, <clears throat> her childhood home. It had thick trim around the windows and doors and was once painted Kendall Green, but the paint had faded and chipped so much over the years that the bare wood siding was exposed, making the house look camouflaged. At one point, someone had started repainting the house plain white, but had given up mid-brush stroke leaving the house more than half unfinished. There was, <clears throat> there was often no water in the house, and Jory had... <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> there was often no water in the house, and Jory had to bucket out what was in the toilet. But Arlene loved that it was spacious and set apart from other houses. It was quiet, she remembered. And five hundred and twenty-five dollars for a whole house, two bedrooms upstairs, two bedrooms upstairs and two downstairs. It was my favorite place, she said. After a few weeks, the city found Arlene's favorite place unfit for human habitation and removed her, nailed green boards over the doors and windows, and issued a fine to her landlord. Arlene moved Jory <coughs> and Jafaris into a drab compartment complex deeper in the inner city on Atkinson Avenue which she soon learned was a haven for drug dealers. She feared for her boys, especially Jory, slack-shouldered with pecan brown skin and beautiful smile who would talk to anyone. That was the 13-year-old, in case you didn't, uh, didn't follow some of the names there. Arlene endured four summer months on Atkinson before moving into a bottom duplex on 13th and Keefe, a mile away. She and the boys walked their things over, Arlene held her breath and tried the lights, smiling with relief as they came on. She could live on someone else's electricity bill for a while. There was a fist-sized hole in the living room window, 
The front door had to be locked with an ugly wooden plank dropped into metal brackets, and the carpet was filthy and ground in. But the kitchen was spacious, and the living room was well lit. Arlene stuffed a piece of clothing in the hole in the living room window and hung ivory-colored curtains. The rent was 550 a month, utilities not included. That was the going rate in 2008 for a two-bedroom unit in one of the worst neighborhoods in America's fourth poorest city. Arlene couldn't find a cheaper place, at least not one fit for human habitation, and most landlords wouldn't rent her a smaller one on account of her two boys. The rent would take 88% of Arlene's $628 a month welfare check. Uh, just to do the math for you real quick on that. She was getting 628. The rent was 550, which left her with like $75 and some change for the entire month. I did that right? Yeah. Eighty-eight percent of her six hundred and twenty-eight dollar a month welfare check. Maybe she could make it work. How many of you think that'd work very well? Maybe they could at least stay through winter until the crocuses and tulips stabbed through the thawed ground of spring, Arlene's favorite season. There was a knock at the door. It was the landlord, Sharina Tarver. Sharina was loaded down with groceries. She spent forty dollars of her own money and picked up the rest of the food and picked up the rest at a food pantry. She knew Arlene needed it. Arlene thanked Sharina and closed the door. Things were off to a good start. That's just the beginning of the story of this family um, is a true story. Uh, names are changed in, from the source that I got it from. But that uh, was one of many stories in this book. And it tells kind of a sad tale, but the problem is, is that it's all too true and it happens all too often. Um, the story goes on, just a couple details here. Soon after this, her closest friend died. So out of uh, empathy for her friend that had passed away, she began giving half of her check to the funeral home to help cover her friend's burial costs and the other half to her landlord. A mistake in the pa <clears throat> paperwork at the welfare office meant her welfare income was lowered. Behind on her rent, the landlord said she could stay in the house if she could pay six fifty per month for the next three months, which she was no longer getting or was never even getting six fifty a month to pay. What about food? Medicine for her asthmatic son. A few months later during the week of Christmas, remember it's Milwaukee, Wisconsin, so it's cold. Um her landlord decided to evict her. After attending the hearing at small claims court, where due to her not understanding the rules of court, speaking out of turn, I think is what happened, um, and she didn't have any legal rep representation, she self-destructed and lost her case. 
so the landlord won, but in a strange turn of events, offered to take her home and wished her a Merry Christmas as the as her tenant left the car. Um, it's a pretty hard, uh, hard heart to say Merry Christmas, get out of my house. So I'm going to just leave it there. Um, they are... They were evicted a number of other times for various things. One place it said, sadly, having children in the house often doesn't actually shield them from eviction. It um, Things come up and it, it often leads to it. Uh, son got in trouble at school one time and police came to the house and through that the landlord evicted him another time. The first time we heard about with the snowball situation. Just on and on and on. Um, but as we go through the rest of this, just try to remember Arlene and her troubles there and her uh, family, her boys, if you can. I'd like to turn to Isaiah 1. Uh, this is kind of where the, the message started for me. Uh, I think it was last week we were gone. We had gone as a family to a cabin just to get away for a little bit. Um, specifically, actually, we wanted, both Lisa and I wanted to get some quiet time alone and just to get away. And in that time, I ran across this verse. And it really stood out to me, and I kept going back to it, and it came up in our conversation a couple times. Uh, I think one of them, it was interesting, Lisa opened the... uh, I think she opened the app on her Bible app on the phone, and up popped the verse of the day, and it was, it was this verse, and I just felt like God was leading there. <clears throat> the problem is, I'm not sure what to do with it yet. So that's what I'm sharing here this morning. The specific verse was verse 17. Um, I'm going to give more context to it, but learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. And that, and mainly the relieve the oppressed is what kept jumping back to us or jumping out at us. Um, for context, these verses fall right in the middle or maybe even the beginning of an indictment against Israel for their, or Judah specifically, I think it says, the vision of Isaiah concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Um, It's an indictment against them for their sin, uh, their iniquity, and corruption. And I'm I'm not wanting to bring that an indictment here at all this morning, but I would like us to be able to look at what, God said to Israel through Isaiah and see how that might how that might uh, relate to us or what we might be able to learn from that. So it's a little hard to know where to jump in. I think I, I think I'm going to start at verse 10. It says, "Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom." So Sodom and Gomorrah had long been destroyed at this point, and I did find it interesting. I think Sodom is mentioned 53 times. 
Um, sometimes it's, it's written Sodomite as in the people of Sodom. But um, throughout the Bible it's mentioned 53 times. And over half of them are from Isaiah onward, which would be long after the destruction of Sodom. So it's clear that uh, God wanted us to learn something from this. And just the, the numerous times that it's brought up. Um, I think prior to Isaiah, most of them would be in, in stories related actually to the events. I didn't, I didn't actually verify that, but it appeared that way. After Isaiah, it's clearly all either historically or, in this case, metaphorically. He's referring to, to the rulers of Judah. He just calls them Sodom. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks or lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with them. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason. <coughs> Sorry about that. Um, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Hear ye rulers of Sodom. That's quite a, uh, quite a statement. After the destruction of Sodom and, and the uh, couple cities around there, I'm sure is, uh, all of Judah knew the story. Can you imagine how that felt to be called Sodom? I was reading through those verses from 10 on to about 16, and it, some of the terms and uh, things there, the new moons and the vain oblations, and some of that is a little bit uh, maybe confusing to us. Um, so I, I rewrote that a little bit in my own words here, maybe to help it apply to us a little bit, or to think about it in a, in a sense that we might be able to understand better. What is the meaning of your praise and worship? I've had enough of your tithing without obedience. Who requires that you should regularly gather and do these things? Don't bring your worthless offerings again. Covering up this stench with perfume is repulsive to me. 
Your many programs have become a burden to me. I'm tired of them. Because of these things, even though you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Um, Can you imagine also Israel thinking, hearing this word from Isaiah? God saying, even though you're praying, I'm not, I won't, I'm not hearing. I will not hear, he says. It looks really bad. Um, it's actually, it was interesting because I think Paul quotes this very, these very verses. Um, uh, verse 9, I think it is. It, Paul quotes in Romans, maybe. I didn't put the reference down, I don't think. Hundreds of years later, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Paul recognizes God's mercy in dealing with Judah, even though the next um, seven or eight verses is how God felt about it. Isaiah's vision doesn't end there in uh, verse 15. God not hearing their prayers. It goes on and it gives the it gives a solution. Wash, make clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. And then I think we often quote this maybe a little bit out of, at least not with its context. Come, let us reason together. You often hear this verse quoted. God's pleading with them. Even though all of those bad things are happening or you've been doing those, if you're willing and obedient, He would heal them. Um... Thinking a little more of Sodom, I want to turn to Ezekiel yet and just see you know, what what was uh, Sodom's issue right away. I think most of our minds think of of uh, fornication. Um, think of the story of Lot and some of the evil things going on there. But here in Ezekiel. It's spelled out very clearly for us. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 48 and 49. As I live, saith the Lord God, Sodom thy sister hath not done, she nor her daughters as thou hast done, thou and thy daughters. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, <clears throat> sorry, pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Sodom and the cities around, it references uh, Sodom and uh, Sodom and her daughters. I think it says, yeah, verse 46. I didn't actually go look this up, but I, if I remember correctly, I think there was four cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and then there was two others close by that got destroyed in that. Um, 
So Sodom and her daughters, that would be the reference to the other cities there. What was the problem? In simple terms, they were arrogant. They had much food. Careless ease was a definition I found of uh, abundance of idleness. But the very last one is, is the interesting one to me and the one I wanted to focus on was uh, she didn't help poor and needy. It seems kind of kind of interesting to be thrown in there in the end. You know, that that's something that she was judged for, is not helping the poor and needy. But I think the first three kind of lended to that fourth one being given. It was clear that um, it was clear that, that Sodom had the means. They had plenty of food. If they if you think about it with me, if they had uh, abundance of idleness or lots of free time, if you will, they had likely had the money, the monetary uh, means. They also, you know, many times people take time. Uh, they apparently had the time, too, with the abundance of idleness. But even with all of these things, they chose not to... Um, or they didn't help the poor and the needy. I wondered, if, was that a deliberate choice? You know, did they decide in their minds we're not going to help the poor and the needy? Is that where the arrogance comes in, the pride? Maybe they didn't even realize there were poor there that needed help. Some might have fallen into that uh, category. Um, Maybe it was a deliberate choice not to even notice them. Or they were too busy playing their games, getting their rest and relaxation, a little R&R. It is clear, though, like I said, that they had the resources, both time, food, financial stability, um, that they chose not to help. And for the benefit of the doubt, like, there's one more option. And maybe they were just that ignorant of the need around them. But God still is holding them accountable for it. So I'm not quite sure. You know, it doesn't really seem like... Uh, it doesn't really seem like that's necessarily an acceptable, uh, acceptable answer to God. I'm going to jump on ahead to Matthew chapter 25. This is the other portion of scripture that kept coming to mind as I was thinking, trying to figure out how, how to bring some of these thoughts into a message. Um, going here. Matthew 25. 
Jesus here, and this chapter is giving uh, parables, a couple of them right in a row, about the kingdom. Um, the very last one here, he tells kind of an interesting story about when the end of time comes. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read it. Good. Plenty of time here. Matthew 25, verse 31 is where we'll start. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory, and before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another. Excuse me. As a shepherd, divide... As a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee, and hungered, and fed thee, and thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw thee, sorry, <clears throat> when saw we thee, a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer, and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So, simply put, the Lord is going to sit and judge. He'll separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep he'll tell to come and inherit the kingdom. And those on the left, the goats, he will say, depart from me. What was the difference? This might be a little bit simplistic. I really struggled knowing how to say this because I didn't want to necessarily take away from the rest of it. But if... Could be debatable. Is there five things that you have to have in place to get into heaven, or seven, or one? Maybe it's just one thing that needs to be done to be saved. You know, think of a pie. If you could break it up a little bit, if you had one or two, you know, there's a lot of uh, the correct term would be philanthropists. A lot of people that try to do a lot of good things, not necessarily. Uh, um, as Christians, but just, I don't know if it's the humanistic uh, philosophies there, what exactly drives them to do that. It kind of makes them feel better, I think, as part of it. helps ease their conscience. 
Um, but, you know, if there was, I don't know if you could say there's a list of five things or seven, but it seems like from this parable that one of the keys to entering heaven is to do just as it says here. For I was hungered and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Naked and you clothed me. Or as Isaiah says, Learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Just doing good, like I said, isn't going to get people into heaven. And there's probably people like I thought of the thief on the cross. When he gave his life to Christ, when he believed and trusted in Christ, there next to him on the cross, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't have an opportunity to help somebody. But as I pondered that a little bit, he did rebuke the oppressor in, uh, I guess it's in the end of Luke. I didn't put that reference down either, but he, uh, he told the other thief, look, you deserve, I deserve what we got. He didn't do anything. He stood up for Jesus who was oppressed, which is one of the things that says there in, in uh, Isaiah again, relieve the oppressed. Um, other translations actually use the word rebuke the oppressor or the phrase rebuke the oppressor. Um, again, I'm not really sure what that's supposed to look like. It also, other translations would also say, uh, I think it was the, uh, the Amplified said it like this, to plead the cause of the widow in court or as if in court. I have another list of verses here I wasn't planning to turn to, and I, I even just brought a short little quote out of them. I'm not quoting all of them. I'll give the references here. If you're taking notes and want to jot them down, you can. Galatians 6.10, First Timothy 6.18, Titus 2.7, James 4.17, 1 Peter 3.11, 3 John, uh, verse 11. And these verses go in the same order uh, as follows. As we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men. Um, teach them that they, may, that they do good. I'm adding the word teach there because it's partway through the verse here. But that they do good, that they may be rich in good works, showing a pattern of good works. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Let him eschew evil. A shoe, um, in in many senses, is very similar to rebuke. Uh, could be another another word to mean the same thing. 
Let him eschew evil and do good. He that doeth good is of God. And first John had many more. Um, the phrase came to mind, I didn't jot it down, but uh, about um, he that seeth his brother that hath need and shutteth up his bowels of mercy, I think is how that goes. And there's many, many more. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat of the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured by the sword. I don't have, I'm going to keep going on here. I don't have answers to, I don't have answers to this. It's something I've been meditating on, thinking about, especially as I was preparing for the message here. It just kept coming back. It seemed like I had another topic actually I wanted to share on and have wanted to for a while, but this just kept coming back and I they didn't fit together and I couldn't. I get traction really going the other direction, the other message. Um, you know, I don't have a five-step process to fix this or something like that. It's something God is still working on me in or with. Um, some of you might like numbers or statistics. I enjoy them. So I have a few here to share for you think about and consider um, in this whole uh, picture of um, let's sum it up by calling it helping the needy not necessarily all widows are needy but we're still supposed to be there for them not all orphans are probably needy but we still should be there for them the Bible instructs us to take care of those people but <clears throat> in an effort to condense the the thought there, you know, and this idea of helping the needy. Here's some numbers. Do you know that there are 443,000 children in foster care in the United States? I'm going to use, I, I don't know. I didn't read this term anywhere. I'm kind of making it up, I guess. So, But I would call those orphans by situation many times. They're taken from their parents uh, for whatever reasons. None of that really matters. Did you know um, there are about, I wanted to find the numbers for uh, the Anabaptists in the United States, but, you know, as a whole, but it wasn't real clear. But I did find a number for the number of Amish families in the United States. You know there are 76,000 Amish families in the United States, Amish alone. And that was by far, you know, they, I found world statistics, and there was somewhere over 2 million Mennonites in the world. The Amish seemed to be by far the smallest uh, number of the Anabaptist group. But I took the liberty to make the assumption that if you would combine all of the Anabaptist uh, groups, 
you know, obviously there are some that um, I wasn't really thinking of, like the Hutterites necessarily, you know, and some of those uh, maybe Russian Mennonites or uh, uh, the groups down there in Mexico. Is that the right term? Yeah, Old Colony Mennonites, thank you. You know, I wasn't necessarily thinking of groups like that. But I think if you took the majority of the Bible-believing uh, Anabaptists, and if they would each take one child, all 443,000 of those children would likely have a home. Maybe have parents that love them for the first time. That's kind of a, kind of a staggering thought. That's just one. You know, there's people... Uh, Think of Allens. We all know Allens. Do they take five, maybe? Surely I can do a little bit in some of these things. One out of four poor families. I didn't, this is a, this is a statistic. I did not do the research on what their description of poor is here, but one out of four poor families spends half of their monthly income on housing. In 2013, one out of eight families couldn't pay all their rent, and an equal number, one out of eight, expected to be evicted soon because of it. Um, you know, that's just a little bit here, but there's needs all around the world. I uh, heard recently a message they were talking about some things in Yemen. I don't know if any of you really follow that situation at all. Um, in a lot of ways, it's kind of faded in the news some, and it's not quite as high profile, but there are 24.1 million people in um, extreme needs there in Yemen. 80% of the population requires some form of humanitarian assistance. 80% of the population. Two out of three... Can't, two out of three people can't afford to buy food. There are over one million cholera cases since 2018. Over one million cholera cases. It has been uh, labeled the largest cholera, cholera epidemic in the world. 25% of them are children of those cholera Those cholera cases, 25% of them are children. Coming back home again, uh, another interesting thing that I learned about recently. Um, a refugee, you know, someone who spent time in a, uh, in a uh, refugee camp. Oftentimes those are outside of their own country even. Um, some nice, benevolent NGO will buy a plane ticket for them and their family after having secured the proper paperwork for them to enter the U.S. Uh, as a refugee or on refugee status. Um, they will buy a plane ticket for them and their family to come to the U.S. And then after they're here for a year, they will get sent a bill for all their expenses in travel. Just a little picture of how that works. Uh, I think how or what all I should say here, but um, 
come into the country with a language barrier, not understanding English, maybe have, are very skilled in your country and something you did, but because of the language barrier, you could never get a job doing that. You know, a job that here would pay fifty, sixty thousand a year easily if you had the language ability. You don't have time to do the study because you have to work, and so you find a low-paying job where you're making about twenty thousand a year, trying to raise three or four children, and then you get a five thousand dollar bill. Yeah, when I heard that, I couldn't hardly believe it. I believe that opportunities abound around us. God may call some of us to go other places. There's needs other places too. You know, I mentioned there in Yemen. It's a huge need. It'd be a huge challenge. But I think God fits people to be able to deal with those kind of things. You know, He has called us to reach the poor and needy, the orphans, the widows. But wherever we are, there are people who need help. That story there in Milwaukee, you know, some it's easy for us in our comfortable situations. I think, you know, if they would move out of the city, they could probably find cheaper rent. You know, they uh, wouldn't have the issues with their boys and being in the, in the drug part of town. You know, we have a lot of pat answers, but there's a lot we don't know, too. Are we... Praying for an opportunity to give a cup of cold water. Are we praying for our neighbors that God would show us how we can help them? I have another story I'd like to finish up with here. And again, it was a long and detailed account. And I did my best to try to trim it to what... uh, the pertinent information. So this is written. Um, oh, what do I say here? It's written by the wife of the mother of this family. I think she talks about her children a little bit occasionally. Um, this couple, this family that lives in, lived at the time of this story. I don't know anything about them more than the, than the book that I took this out of. But they lived in Durham, North Carolina. And they have quite a testimony. It's a really, really an incredible uh, story. But this is just one little um, snapshot, maybe a maybe a, maybe a little bit of a picture or something for us to draw from as an example. 
and how in our day and age we can do some of these things. It's mostly written in um, first person. She's writing, and I'll try to read it from that sense, but with having cut out things, it might get a little confusing. I'm sorry. May 12, 2016, 5.15 a.m., Durham, North Carolina. A text message from a neighbor came in. What's going on at Hank's house? Why are police surrounding the house? Are you okay? And my phone was turned off and in the other room, so I didn't get the message. Peaceful sleep sounds echoed from my husband and two youngest children. My Bible was open in my notebook. My coffee cup was at arm's reach. I had started my devotions that morning, as I did for the past 17 years, and as Ken and Floyd Smith modeled for me, the couple that led her to Christ, praying that the Lord would open my eyes to see wondrous things in His Word. Uh, She then proceeds here to explain or talk about a list of her... uh, I'll just... Maybe I'll just read it. That morning after I read through five psalms and one proverb, I began to pray. I typically intersperse prayer with Bible reading and note-taking. In the morning, I pray in concentric circles. I start by praying for myself that the Lord would increase my love for Him. Uh, I didn't. Maybe I should say this. I didn't actually look up that idea, concentric circles, but my impression is that She started with herself and she prayed for those closest to her and then she would then pray for those outside in the next circle, whatever that may have been. Uh, First for herself, then for her family, then for her neighbors, then for the city. I'm not sure, but I think that's what she's implying here, just to help give a little picture. So I start praying for myself that the Lord would increase my love for him, grow me in holiness, give me the courage to proclaim Christ in word and deed as a living epistle, lead me to repent and Give me the humble heart and mind of Christ and the kind comfort of the Holy Spirit to make me a more faithful and loving wife and mother and friend. I then pray for my family, the church, my neighbors, my nation, foreign missionaries and missions. I thank the Lord that he is risen, that he prays for me and that he sends people into my life, starting with the Smiths, to bring me to himself and hold me safely close. I thank God for the covenant of which I am a part. I keep my prayer notebook open and I flip through the pages as I pray through the names. That morning, my prayer time stopped at the concentric circle labeled neighbor. I was praying for my immediate neighbor, whose house I could see from my writing desk. There I was, praying for my neighbor. It was a typical morning, except that the phone I had turned off, which was in the other room, continued to receive text messages, alerting me that something was terribly, dreadfully wrong in the house across the street the house of the man for whom I was praying. Our house and Hank's share a dead end. Hank is the neighbor. Our house and Hank's share a dead end that stops where two acres of woods open up. When Hank's moving van first backed down his drive in 2014, he was a self-described recluse. He worked in his yard digging ditches, arbitrarily, and perfectly round holes. He played loud music. He occasionally received cell phone calls that got him seething mad and shouting obscenities. He owned a 100-pound pit bull named Tank who ran the streets without a collar or tags. Each neighbor can recall how we all saw our life flash before our eyes 
the first time we met Tank, about bounding toward us at full throttle. Hank didn't cut his grass for three months, and by the time the city fined him for creating a meadow, no regular mower could tackle the cleanup. Truth be told, Hank was not the neighbor we had prayed, prayerfully asked for when our former neighbor sold the house. But we trusted Hank was the neighbor God had planned for us. Good neighboring was at the heart of the gospel that we knew. So when Hank moved in, we shared with him our contact information, introduced him to our dogs and children, and waited for him to reciprocate. Instead, he dismantled his front doorbell so that no one else could disturb him. We prayed for Hank. We gently rebuked other neighbors for being suspicious or unkind in their questions and concerns about his reclusiveness. And then one day, Tank ran away and did not come home. One night turned into two, two nights into a week. In the crisis of a lost dog, one who was also the closest companion of a lonely man, our bond was forged. We offered our help and Hank received our open hand. We posted Tank's information on neighborhood email groups enlisted other neighbors to come to Hank's aid. My 10-year-old daughter cried herself to sleep each night as she prayed for Tank's return. And she told Mr. Hank about her prayers and God's faithfulness. When Tank was finally found safe and sound, we became friends. We started to walk our dogs together. Soon we were eating meals together, spending holidays together, and sharing life. We learned that Hank lived alone. Had severe clinical depression, PTSD, ADHD, and social anxiety. Now, if you're familiar with any of those things, any one of those would make any relationship difficult. But imagine dealing with somebody with all four of them. Hank loved the woods as much as the children and I do, and as winter opened into spring, we kept a tally of our nesting red-shouldered hawks, our calling American toads, our migrating and returning robins, blue jays, woodpeckers, towhees, and ambling box turtles. Hank helped us chop down our dead trees, stack our wood. In his garage, he always had the knick-knack someone might need, a small flashlight to attach to a reflector vest for a night run, a hook that could hold doggy bags to a leash. Hank was uneven. His depression made him so. Sometimes he stayed secluded in his home for weeks on end. We could text and offer to help, but to no avail. The only sign of life in these times was that his garbage can would appear at the curb on the, appoint on the appointed night. As neighbors were texting my turned-off phone that morning about danger at Hank's house, I was sitting at my desk praying for Hank. I was praying for Hank's salvation, and then I noticed it. Burly men ducking around the back of my house wearing orange shirts marked DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency. Serene darkness exploded with the unnatural intrusion of police lights. Yellow tape appeared everywhere. Crime scene. I left my Bible open to Psalm 42 and ran to wake Ken and the children. I grabbed my phone and turned it on. The text messages bounced into life. What's going on at Hank's house? I hear there's a meth lab across the street from you. What, is, what does the conservative, Bible-believing family do in a crisis of this magnitude? How ought we to think about this? How ought we to live? We could barrack ourselves in the house, remind ourselves and our children that 
As 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, evil company perverts, and like the good Pharisee that we are always poised to become, thank God that we are not like evil meth addicts. We could surround our home in our own version of yellow crime scene tape, giving the message that we are better than this, that we make good choices, that we would never fall into this mess. We could surround ourselves with fear. What if the meth lab explodes and takes out my daughter's bedroom, the room closest to the lab? We could berate ourselves with criticism. How could we have allowed this meth addict into our hearts and our home? But that, of course, is not what Jesus calls us to do. As neighbors filed into our front yard, which had become front row seats for an unfolding drama of epic magnitude, I scrambled eggs, put on a big cup of coffee, a big pot of coffee, set out the Bibles, and invited them in. Who else but the Bible-believing Christians can make redemptive sense of tragedy? That statement alone is, is actually kind of interesting to ponder. But Bible-believing Christians, who else but Bible-believing Christians can make redemptive sense of tragedy? Who can see hope in the promises of God when the real-life circumstances look dire? Who else knows that, that the sin that will undo me is my own, not my neighbor's, no matter how big my neighbor's sin may appear? And where else but a Christian home should neighbors go in times unprecedented crisis, in times of unprecedented crisis? Where else is it safe to be vulnerable, scared, lost, hopeless? How else could we teach our children how to apply to the facts of life a process that cancels out neither reality as it, as it begs Jesus for hope, help, redemptive purpose, and saving grace? If we were to close the shades and numb ourselves through media intake or go into remote monologues about how we always knew he was bad or how we always, how we always make good choices, what legacy would that leave to our children? Here's the thing about soothing yourself with self-delusion. No one buys it but you. I had other things to do on my list that day, but none more important than what I was doing. Gathering in distraught neighbors, praying for my friend Hank. Quickly and organically, our house became an all-day crisis station. Neighbors from children to the aged, who did not have to report to school or work, stay the day with us. Later that afternoon... The Butterfields knew Hank. They were friends. Could they have known about the meth lab? That was what our neighbors told the police that morning when they arrested Hank and his live-in girlfriend Amy for cooking crystal meth in the basement. All eyes were on us because we had worked hard to befriend Hank and to include this lonely man into the rhythm of our lives. He was not easy to win over. The truth is, although we had shared meals, holidays, countless dog walks, it took a whole year before we knew his last name or had his permission to text him on his cell phone. But once we became friends, we loved and appreciated him, and he us. After Marion Knox, her two children, helped find his missing dog, Hank trusted us. Hank said it best one day. He said, you guys are my pack. That's cool. Watching the DEA drag out Hank and Amy from the scandal and secret of their addiction was painful. Hank was ashamed, head low, not able to look at us. Amy was flying high as a kite, pink hair wild like her eyes. She made eye contact with me and waved, blue kisses to my children, like a homecoming queen or a princess. The police detoxed Hank and Amy with less dignity than they gave Tank. Fire hosing them into sobriety, jerking them ragdoll roughly, 
Protected by white hazmat suits, they could treat them like subhuman trash. They thrust them like garbage on the ground when they were finished, leaving them to drip dry where they landed. It was inhumane and wretched to watch. This is the process by which image bearers, everyone is created in God's image. This is the process by which image bearers become prison numbers, lost people, nobodies. Hank was no longer our neighbor. He became an object lesson about what not to do. The police knew we were the neighbors who knew Hank the best, and by 6.30 we had provided them with Hank's mom's phone number. We told them that we would take responsibility for Tank, the enormous and depressed 100-pound pit bull. One of the officers was a pit bull lover, and she was thankful that, we, that she could just hand Tank over to us. But now we were fingered as friends, not just informed neighbors of the evil one. That was true. It cast us in a different light. The whole neighborhood accused us of loving this sinner. Sorry, let me start that over. That the whole neighborhood accused us of loving this sinner was likely the best Christian witness we ever had. But that doesn't mean it was pleasant. By noon, our house was like a trauma center with the DEA and others of the police team using our kitchen and bathroom, the neighbors coming by in a steady stream of concern, lament, and criticism. Tank was bathing and kid love and playing in the backyard with the other dogs. Sorry, I'm going to skip over a little bit here. Bill, one of the neighbors, pacing in my kitchen and finishing up the last of the coffee from the morning, said, I can't believe you could be friends with him. I know you I can't read this probably quite how it was said. I'm gonna start over here. I can't believe you could be friends with him. You want to know the problem with you Christians? No, I'm thinking, but you're probably going to tell me anyway, she says. You Christians are so open minded that your brains are falling out of your ears. It takes God's grace to get your neighbor to polish off the last of your coffee and insult you in the same breath. Here are a number of other um, things that the neighbor said. That evil drug addict almost killed your sweet family. Did you know about the meth lab? More than one neighbor declared, you must have known. Others asked, did you call the police on him? How could you not have known? The jury was in. The neighbors hated Hank. And we're not so very sure how they felt about us knowing that we called him our friend. For the whole day, Kent and I were doing ad hoc grief counseling. Neighbors, neighbor kids, Hank's sad dog, the press swarmed our neighborhood with relentless fixation. And we dodged them like a, like a virus. Ours was the largest meth lab bust in Durham, North Carolina. And it was big news. The press did what it did, does best, stirred up unrest and gossip, and left neighbors... Neighbors feeling exposed and raw. Um, I'm going to stop the story there. It goes on. Uh, I think I have a couple other notes here. I wanted to comment on it. How do I... How do I respond in situations like this? 
It's something that stuck out to me. Just the res- their response to the neighbors and the things they said and the whole thing happening. Another question might be, do I ever find myself in a situation like this? We might uh, thank God that we don't. Is that a good thing? Should we be looking, praying even, for situations like this? Obviously not, that our neighbor would be a meth addict. But for the opportunity to interact with your neighbor in, in such a way... It doesn't say anything about this, but I would make an assumption that they were probably one of the few people that ever won his heart, at least to this point in the story, and at least for quite some time. The story goes on. Uh, His family continued to visit Hank in prison, and he actually was eventually converted. I did not not, uh, get a lot of those details. Just felt like it would end up running too long, but um, sometimes when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, we often, so if we think about this, uh, we have these, I don't know what to call them, I think I said pat answers earlier, we have these reasons maybe, and they might be good, uh, Reasons they might—I don't know. I, one I thought of was when listening to this, or yeah, listening to this book. It was an audio book. Um, I thought about was how did these people ever protect their children going through all these things? And this is only uh, the beginning of what they're what they talk about and what they dealt with in this book. They adopted a couple foster children, older foster children, 13, 14, 15-year-olds. And yeah, it's amazing what they, were, what they were able to do. But, you know, well, I should protect my children, and that's good and right. I think we need to. But somehow I think God wants us to do more. I'd like to make a suggestion Sometimes the first answer that comes to our mind needs to be run through the Bible, through God's Word, and seriously consider if our first thoughts are God's thoughts. If this is God's will, there is clearly a way. Um, Kind of in wrapping up here, working with people will get messy. I've heard that said before. We uh, like our lives to be clean and orderly. But even Jesus was accused by the self-righteous, self-righteous crowds around him of fellowshipping with wicked people, of eating with the sinners, of the uh, lady that poured the ointment on his feet. I forget how it's. I didn't look it up, but I forget how it says there. But it, uh, doesn't it say if if he knew who she was? He wouldn't let her do that. Can we follow his example of bringing peace to the hurting soul? That's something I would like to discuss more uh, with anyone. You know, how can we, in what ways can we do more?
Can we be more involved? I'd be interested in hearing ideas. If you, I don't know, if you want to send a text or something. I was trying to figure out how to like do this, but you know, I would like to hear other ideas. It's a process I'm working through, trying to understand and figure out what God has for us in it. So you can pray for us in that. Um, one suggestion I thought of is if you do text me an idea, a way we could reach out to those around us. Maybe uh, why don't you go and do it yourself? Tell me about it and I'll pray for you. I don't really think we need programs. I think I've, I think I mentioned that earlier. I don't mean that to sound callous to tell you to go do it yourself, but I think we each need to do our part. And again, if you tell me about it, I'll definitely pray for you. Can we strive together as brothers and sisters to enter in at the narrow gate? I I don't know. Again, I said I don't really really want to like bring this up as a debate, but I really think this is one of the keys, and I feel like I'm missing it, and I wonder, I guess, how the rest of us feel. Have, are we missing it here as a body? Is there more that we can do as a body? I think there's definitely more I can do personally, and even with my family, so you can pray for us in that. I think I'll close there.